Welcome to Deep Pockets, the podcast for exploring how basic science, once created in a lab and funded by public means, is fueling the economy with completely new private industries. Deep Pockets is created by Petra Soderling. On September 14, 1858, Mr. Fordyce Beals, an employee of Remington Arms Company, LLC, received his U.S. patent number 21,478 for his design, which required lowering of the loading lever to allow the cylinder pin to be pulled forward to free the cylinder. This ingenious patent was quickly implemented in Remington revolvers, which the company supplied to both the Union Army and Navy throughout the Civil War. More than 80 Union cavalry regiments were armed with hundreds of thousands of Remington revolvers. Around the same time, a former Milwaukee newspaper editor, Mr. Christopher Latham Scholes, experiments with what he calls a writing machine. His writing machine is built from piano hammers, telegraph keys, and a pedal from a sewing machine. The writing machine is patented 10 years after the Remington rifle. By this time, the war is over, and Mr. Philo Remington sits on a pile of cash. Mr. Scholes presents the writing machine to Mr. Remington. He gets excited, and the Remington typewriter is born. As the telegraph keys, piano hammers, and sewing machine lend themselves to the typewriter, the manual typewriter lends itself to the electric typewriter, which lends itself to the word processor, again to the personal computer, and finally to the smartphone. So who should we thank for the phone in our pocket? Union Army, Mr. Scholes, or Mr. Remington? To discuss this with me today is Laura Thomas, a specialist in national security and emerging technologies. She's a former CIA officer and chief of base who led sensitive CIA operations both at, both at CIA headquarters and abroad and currently is a senior director of national security sh- solutions at a quantum sensing and computing company. She also serves as an advisor to tech startups. Welcome to Deep Pockets, Laura. Thank you, Petra. It's really nice to be here. So, in your opinion, who should we thank for our phones? The army who created private wealth, the wealthy individual, or the inventor? Well, I think as your narrative illustrates, it's it's probably a combination of all of them. Uh, though I do think we should probably give the most credit to individual inventors. You know, it's it's a very special person who's willing to tolerate constant failure without a loss of enthusiasm and a type of person who has the perseverance to endure and eventually leads that spark that creates a new product or industry and really alters our way of living. So um, let's talk about the CIA a little bit. CIA launched its own venture capital firm, InQtel, In 1999, I found a Wired article from 2003 that said that Silicon Valley was skeptic at first, but now everybody is a believer. Over those four years, a total of 3,400 companies had pitched to InQtel. It has long been, and I think still is, the country's only federally funded venture capital firm. Why would an organization like the CIA do this? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, I think an organization's decisions, they're ultimately a result of 
its culture and its people. And there were some real visionaries at CIA at the time who realized that NQTEL is exactly what the CIA needed. And I know that Sue Gordon, you know, she was a, a driving factor behind NQTEL. As you might be aware, she eventually became the principal deputy director of national intelligence. And she is quite the guiding light for many women in the intelligence community. Uh, she also happens to be on the board of my, my current company. The, this would be the Honorable Susan M. Gordon, who indeed served as a principal deputy director of national intelligence until August 2019. Prior to assuming that role, she was the deputy director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, as well as the director of the CIA's Information Operations Center and senior cyber advisor to the director of the CIA. Gordon worked for the CIA for over 25 years. Um, but I believe that she and you know a number of others recognized really early on the tectonic shift that technology was having and would continue to have on economic and national security and the forces of, of innovation that were really being unleashed in the late 90s. And, and then if you kind of look back at the same time, there was this divergence uh, between government and industry. It was a sense that the Cold War was over. It, you know, there's a real sense of, of promise and optimism in the U.S. that, you know, how these new technologies would, would shape our future. And we're looking to the future rather than ha- walking around with that fear of fear of the future and the threats that, you know, previously lurked within from adversaries like the Soviet Union. And at the same time, there was a recognition that the slow movement of government acquisition process meant that the agency and the U.S. government were really losing out on a lot of innovative technologies. And of course, you know, CIA being a government entity, it it couldn't really afford to hire top venture capital talent. So they knew they'd have to create a new way of doing things. And uh, thus, NQTEL was born. And you know, one thing to note is NQTEL, it serves more than just the CIA, but it's really the entire intelligence community. And also it, it does some work with affiliated partners uh, in the UK and Australia. And they're really looking at technologies that um, have the potential to commercialize and also have national security implications. So think AI, ML, quantum, autonomous systems, data analytics and cybersecurity, these are all very key areas for NQTEL. And, you know, on the whole, I think it's an incredibly valuable organization. Uh, There are still really major challenges to getting the right technology into the hands of the people who need it. And, uh, you know, this can be done. It's done from time to time, but there's still a bureaucratic process there that that, um, sort of slows us down. And and sometimes by the time the technology gets into the hands of the user, it's, it's outdated. I think it would probably take hours to untangle that in, in, in this podcast, so we don't have that much time. Um, but, you know, the main takeaway for me is that our defense acquisition policies, they were built for a bif- different time. And that time was when we purchased large platforms that had been proven to work exactly as tested. And I think until we make cultural shifts within organizations, we're, we're sort of always going to be rolling a ball uphill and trying to address technology adoption into the government. And ultimately, I think we're going to have to to change the way we um, acquire uh, technology through the federal sort of it's called the the FAR, the Federal Acquisition Regulation, and that's a lot easier said than done. The Federal Acquisition Regulation FAR is the principal set of rules regarding government procurement, 
It covers many of the contracts issued by the U.S. military and NASA, as well as U.S. civilian federal agencies. It contains contract clauses and provisions such as certification requirements and instructions directed at firms that might be interested in competing for a specific contract. Most recently, the general public saw this regulation in the news when Blue Origin complained against NASA for choosing SpaceX as the first commercial human lender to the moon. Blue Origin felt NASA did not appropriately evaluate the two bids. But uh, getting back to your, your question on QTEL itself, I mean, the value proposition is, is really high for some of these startup companies because government is so hard to break into and QTEL basically breaks down those barriers for them. You know, they have uh, the contacts and the cachet and they just know how to get things done. And that's very powerful. Yeah, you mentioned that CIA is not the only government office that deals with national security and engages private companies in inventing new products and services. To maintain the technological superiority on the battlefield, the Department of Defense, DOD, relies on scientific and technical knowledge developed in large measure through research, development, tests, and evaluation, what they call the RDT&E, funded by the department and performed by industry, universities, federal labs, etc., And 97% of this budget, which was $107.5 billion uh, last year, comes from Defense Appropriations Act, Title IV. This money is divided between Army, Navy, Air Force, and Space Force. And if we look at the type of research this $100 billion funds, most of this is directed towards the application of existing scientific and technical knowledge, to meet uh, the current or near-term operational needs. And only 2.4% is given to basic research. Given that we would not have the internet if it wasn't for DOD's basic research funds, do you think this 2.4% is enough? Well, I I think the issue isn't so much the amount, um, but it's how that amount is spent and, and the value that's lost in, in the overarching and, and very highly bureaucratic way that the U.S. government does budgeting and allocations. And, you know, if you think about this and then you add in human nature, we can see that we're combining outdated process with sometimes the lesser angels of, of human nature. And what do I mean by that? Well, you know, I think organizations, they get the behaviors they reward. And the U.S. government, as a bureaucracy, it really rewards caution and a lack of deviation from process when it comes to money and, and government spending. And, you know, I, I would add that that's, that's for good region, reason. I mean, no taxpayer wants to think that their hard-earned money is being thrown into the ocean and you know, no politician would be reelected if, if that's the case, um, or at least known to be the case. And even a, a very senior government bureaucrat doesn't want a crisis on their watch that's involving, you know, cronyism or wasteful spending. Um, but sometimes, you know, we, we kind of end up causing what we're trying to prevent And I think that's especially true when we don't adapt our frameworks to changing times. And 30 years ago, it it made sense to do long and careful uh, budgetary planning cycles just based on the way technology uh, worked. But uh, today, the speed at which technology forces change, we we just have not adapted to it. And I think we're creating Band-Aid fixes and we're not really addressing the root cause, which is fixing government processes and Again, this I think this ties back into culture and 
and human nature, and we're very reticent to change. And the issue has become so large that no single person or even government entity really has the ability to change it, potentially outside of, of Congress, if they were to change the legislation. I, you know, it's sort of like watching an ant colony. Uh, a single ant can't move a stick, but hundreds can. And we just don't have that level of cooperation and cohesiveness yet. Um, when you really think about it, I think that the, the only thing that forces bureaucracies to change is, is a major crisis. And I think that it's very possible we'll have to face a, a crisis big enough to force that change. Right now we have this frozen middle of procurement within the government. And um, there are individual contracting officers who are stuck in process for process sake. And I think they're divorced from the bigger why. Uh, You know, they're just doing what they've been taught because bad things happen, you know, if they deviate from what they're taught, like questions of wasteful spending. Um, and, And I think, you know, in many ways, what's happening is we're punishing the many for the mal- past malfeasance of the few. And rather than giving procurement officials really broad autonomy to use good judgment, um, we're just, we're just, we're sort of stuck in that past thinking. And, you know, we have to bring the end user. So who's actually using the technology in the government closer to the industry provider instead of always working through these very layered procurement process. And I think, you know, technology compresses timeframes and that's why it's so important that we break down those barriers. Um, I, I will go back to the procurement piece too. I mean, procurement officers, you know, they're not going to get fired or face any type of really retribution if, if they go with a mainstay big defense contractor for anything to include, you know, items of basic research even if that project fails. And if they push the envelope though, and they select an unknown entity uh, to do that research, then they've broken away from the pack and they put themselves at risk and people aren't incentivized to take riskier bets. Even if those bets aren't particularly risky, they're just riskier than the mainstays. Um, And, you know, perhaps if that bet paid off well, then they'd be rewarded. But because failed ones with big contractors don't incur much question or accountability, you know, what, what's the, what's the incentive to take a riskier bet? You know, there's a really great quote that I, when I talk about this, I'm reminded of uh, Desmond Tutu. He, he said that there comes a point where we have to stop pulling people out of the river and we have to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. And for me, until we change the underlying cause, we're just treating symptoms and you know, throwing more money at a problem doesn't necessarily fix it. So, you know, back to your question that I think there are really structural changes in the budgeting and acquisition process that, that we need to fix first, rather than just um, increasing the size and the amount of money that we, we spend. Yeah. Another quote that comes to mind when I was listening to you is no one ever got fired for um, buying an IBM machine. So it's a similar, <laughs> exactly. similar pattern. Yeah. yeah um, you also mentioned something that I liked um, a lot, the bigger why. Some some of these uh, um, procurement people, you said, are divorced from the bigger why. So here's the bigger why. If we go back to the early 2000s, 9-11, that was obviously a security event. 
that made many changes in how Americans and the entire world use the internet, how we bank, travel, communicate, etc. Would you say that the tighter national security requirements to private companies was a boost or a hindrance in tech innovation? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Uh, it's it's hard to say. You know, I, we can look at some of the technologies that have started directly or indirectly as a result. You know, for example, encryption um, and, and all the technologies around encryption today. You know, I don't think we'd have them if it weren't for 9-11. And subsequently, that cat and mouse game of you know increasing communication snooping and, and security and you know, back to my comment about sometimes it takes a crisis to change a bureaucracy. You know, in this case, a crisis led to an entirely new segment for the old defense contractors and the rise of new ones. Yeah. So going back to the Remington revolver again, that revolver actually transitioned into a new form factor by late 1862. And this was due to continual improvement improvement suggestions from the U.S. Ordnance Department. In other words, the army was giving user feedback to a tech company, thus making the tech company's products more successful. How much of this do you know is happening today? Yeah, I, certainly, you know, this happens today. Uh, I, I do think a major challenge for companies who work with the government, um, especially if they're working with the government as a stepping stone to larger commercial markets, which, which many are, You know, they have to be really careful not to over-engineer product to government standards. And I think this, among you know, a few other reasons, is why some venture capital firms, they shy away from investing in early-stage companies with a government sales component. You know, working with the government, it can sometimes bring you know, quite high compliance standards and overhead costs that, that can cripple a company's ability Uh, to move very quickly to address the commercial markets. And, um, you know, when you have to engineer to a, a highly articulated government standard, that doesn't always align to commercial consumer demands. Um, you know, they, they can't just transfer over the product they produce for the government to the commercial sector necessarily. Um, if you can find a technology that does that very well, then, you know, there's certainly benefit there. And generally, if, if you look, many companies, they find it quite difficult to serve both a, a government and a commercial uh, market. And if you look at the successful companies that are doing it, you'll see that they've they've actually split themselves into subsidiaries, you know, Microsoft versus Microsoft Federal, for example. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So this episode is on war, and we haven't spoken about an actual war yet. Yeah. Uh, the war that must be on top of everyone's minds is, of course, Afghanistan. Brown University's Costs of War project has estimated the war in Afghanistan has cost U.S. taxpayers $2.3 trillion, trillion with a T. To put this in context, all of the 2019 budget spendings were $4.4 trillion, so almost a half year's worth of tax revenue has gone into this war. Where did that money go, Laura? <laughs> well, I'm not going to give you a, a definitive answer because that's a, that's a lot of money to account for. Um, but you know, I will say Afghanistan has certainly been on my mind as well, having served there. Um, I think a general answer would be so much of that money went to infrastructure costs. And if you've been to Afghanistan and, and visited Bagram Air Base, for example, you know you would have seen just the magnitude of, of infrastructure, you know that that it took to to house, feed, and protect U.S. troops. And then you add in 
airlift, mobility costs for just vehicles, helicopters. And, you know, obviously it's not just for U.S., it was for NATO as well. And you, you think about the big defense contractors that were hired to put up perimeter security and barricades and then all the money that went into training and supplying the Afghan army. Um, and then the, the money that went into Afghan companies to provide basic resources and some of which, uh, a good portion of which actually fueled you know, even more corruption in Afghanistan. So that, that's where a lot of it went generally. Um, I think on the technology front, you know, the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan and Iraq, it led to lots of money being spent on being able to, to better sort of see the battlefield from a technological perspective. And some of this technology, I think, no doubt benefits everyday people in the U.S. and the world. And we think of autonomous technologies like drone delivery or the Internet of Things, camera technologies. You know, it, it certainly could be just as easily used for surveillance, but it, it's also used to wire your house so you can know you know, exactly when your Amazon package was delivered and you can look in your, your camera and, or your ring device and see, you know, that it was put on your front door or back door as you requested. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't help but think of just the huge civil society programs we poured money into in Afghanistan to, to try to create a, a stable government. And a, a good example would be just the large programs to eradicate the poppy product. Right? You know, the sheer volumes of money that went into that. And it's really hard to say how much we have to show for it. And, you know, it also makes me think about the, the human factor as well. Um, I mean, there are girls who are educated today because of, of that. And, and that really matters. Um, and, and certainly the value of one life saved um, is, is a good thing. And it, it makes it really hard when you're taking a, a cold, calculating view of financial cost benefit. And then you compare that to just the, the number of lives lost, lost both Afghan, U.S., and, and many other nationalities as well. And, you know, overall, I think we've we suffered from a sunk cost syndrome combined with hubris in Afghanistan. And I don't know, where, where does that leave me with my views? Um, they're always changing. I think um, they're being formed according to what I learn. And there's a, a quote that I really like. It's, when the facts change, I change my mind. And Right now, I think war has certainly shaped technology because it shapes us as people and technology. It's ultimately a reflection of human nature and human desires. Laura Thomas, thank you so much for taking talking us to us today. All right. You're welcome. It's my pleasure, Petra. You've listened to Deep Pockets by Petra Soderling. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes.